Hey there, and welcome to Truth Be Told, a theology and apologetics podcast not claiming to have all of the answers, but created to analytically look at the truth contained in the Bible and encourage critical thinking on how to apply that truth to our lives. I'm Micah Gunn, and I appreciate you listening in. No matter your level of understanding or knowledge, I sincerely hope and pray that you find these words edifying, informative, and beneficial. So let's get started. I recently returned from celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, and for those of you who might not be aware of what the Feast of Tabernacles is, it's a concept that can be found in the book of Leviticus, along with several other holy days that God commanded ancient Israel to keep. However, I personally believe, and I have believed for a long time, as do many others, this is not just a Micah Gunn idea or a Micah Gunn original, Uh, But I believe that God also issues the command for us to keep these days, too. Uh, I don't see them as strictly Jewish holidays, and I I don't see them as done away with at Christ's crucifixion, along with the law, quote-unquote, as Paul calls it. And uh, this is what I'm going to be trying to show today as I go through apologetics for the Feast of Tabernacles, or rather apologetics for keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I think I should mention before we really get into uh, the meat of the subject today that I also keep the other holy days, as well as the Passover that is listed in the Bible. But for the sake of this argument today, I'll be specifically talking about the Feast of Tabernacles as a single holy day. And I bring this up because uh, some of the arguments that I'll bring up here today may be possibly used in a defense of keeping the other holy days listed in Leviticus. Um, and, and it might cause you to have some thoughts towards the other ones, particularly if you find my argument convincing today. Um, but there's still some work to be done for each individual day listed in God's commands to Israel uh, that are individual to that specific day. So today I'm strictly going to be looking at the Feast of Tabernacles, and uh, I want I hope you would judge the argument based on that criteria alone. I also would like to mention that I am not a Hebrew Roots Movement person, nor am I a Salvation by Works person. Uh, I don't believe that keeping the Feast of Tabernacles or the other Holy Days will grant you salvation, nor do I believe uh, that any amount of good works will do that, um, though I do think we should be doing good works. Um, but many might try to claim one of these things of me due to this episode, and it's it's just absolutely not true. Um, these ideas can definitely be reconciled, and I think you'll see that if you uh, follow along my argumentation here with an open mind. And when I say argumentation, I just uh, simply mean a defense for what I believe, an, an apologetic for the Feast of Tabernacles, not uh, a yelling match or anything like that. I do believe, however that if God offers us salvation by grace through faith, and that faith without works is dead, which we can show from the Bible, and that we show our faith by our works, and that included in works is keeping the commands of God, uh, that we should be keeping the commands of God, and that part of those commands include the Holy Days, and more specifically to today's topic, the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I think most people would agree with most of what I just said. Uh, I'd hope the only question we'd ask ourselves from this episode, however, is, is the Feast of Tabernacles something God commands me to do or not? And that's what I hope to be um, going through today. If you end up disagreeing with me, that's totally okay. I I realize I can't uh, hope to present my argument so well that every single person finds it compelling and uh, absolutely you know, begins to do or believe exactly what I do or believe. But it is something that I find very important and something that 
is often neglected in a lot of uh, mainstream Christianity. Now, there are certain biblical teachers that will uh, at least look at the historicity of the Feast of Tabernacles, perhaps go into some of the uh, future or modern meaning that we can draw out of those holy days. And I think that's, that's a valuable lesson, absolutely. But what's interesting to me is that they will often these people will point to uh, future importance of these days, but then kind of limit, um, you know, the fact that we shouldn't be keeping them now. And I'm thinking, well, if there's a future importance, why is there not a present importance or um, a a present necessity to keep these days or or to remember them, or at the very least, make them a a prominent part of our teaching. But anyway, so so I'm going to work out my argument like this in six six, uh, points that I hope to keep rather concise but this is a pretty broad topic, so I will do my absolute best, but maybe you'll have to listen in sections. Um, So like I said, six points. The first one being the Feast of Tabernacles is a command of God and should therefore be looked at closely to see who the command goes out to. The second point is the Feast of Tabernacles was a time planned out from the beginning of creation. The third point is the Feast of Tabernacles is not strictly a Jewish holiday, despite the Jews being included in the original command. And uh, I'll, I'll give further information and points for each of these. This isn't um, this synopsis is not obviously the extent of all that I'll be saying about each of these points, but they are the main conclusions that I hope to get to in building this cumulative case for the Feast of Tabernacles. The fourth point that I hope to bring up is the fact that the Feast of Tabernacles was kept by Jesus Christ and the apostles, which only adds to the seriousness with which we should consider whether or not we should be practicing this as well. Uh, The fifth point is that the Feast of Tabernacles was continued to be observed by Christians after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which points to the fact that it was not done away with uh, at Christ's crucifixion. And then the last point is the Feast of Tabernacles will one day be celebrated by all nations according to prophecy and has future fulfillment and importance. Um, And that point will uh, kind of specifically go into the fact that if it has a future fulfillment or if it has a um, future time where this will be kept by people, then why should we think we can just skip all of this modern time and uh, pick it back up much later on. So that will be kind of how I wrap things up. So first, it is a command of God. As I said earlier, we can find the command from God in Leviticus, more specifically, Leviticus chapter 23, verses 34 through 37. And uh, if you're following along with me, that's absolutely great. But as always, I'll be reading the scriptures with you. So Leviticus 23, beginning in verse 34, it says, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation. And this is this is a separate holy day that's being talked about here. Um, known as the eighth day or sometimes the last great day. And uh, people in Jewish culture will often call this the day with no no meaning uh, because they don't know what meaning it has. Uh, they don't know what meaning to ascribe to it. But again, that's not what I'll be speaking about primarily today. 
Um, but it does continue on there. And you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day. Now, most of this shows just a description of what is to be done on this day, but notice how often it says, you shall, indicating that this is a command from God. They had to actually do something. Now, of course, one might say, but that isn't proof that I personally am commanded to do these things, just that someone was commanded to do these things. To which I would say, you're absolutely right, but again, we are building a cumulative case here. And at least here, the point that I'd like to draw out is that we agree on the fact that the supreme being over all of existence is issuing a command. Now, whoever that command seems to be to, we should ask ourselves, for what purpose is that being commanded? And does that command apply to me? And uh, to further illustrate this, I'll give some examples. So Abraham was commanded by God to get out of his country. And we look at that command and we realize it was specifically to Abraham. God does not command every single person that follows him to get out of their country specifically. You know, that's not a direct command to every person from God. There are other commands, however, like Jesus's command to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature that we know he gave personally to his apostles, but we also generally agree that it was a commission to the church, of which I consider myself a part of. So uh, all this stands to reason that commands by God should be taken seriously and considered as to how they might apply to us if they do. So that's the only point that I want to bring up there, is that it is a command from God and should be taken seriously and should be looked at further to analyze, is this something that I should also practice or is this something that was specific to a people group or specific person? So the second point, the Feast of Tabernacles was a day planned out from the beginning of creation. Now, even in this verse in Leviticus, we get a hint of this where God says, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. Now, notice, if you're following along in your Bible, or if you're not, I'll, I'll point this out to you, the words shall be is in italics, meaning it was added. So what really would be here is speak to the children of Israel, saying the 15th day of the seventh month, the Feast of Tabernacles, seven days to the Lord. That is, that is what it actually reads if we were to translate word for word. Um, so shall be is in italics, it was added um, to bring clarity, but when we read it like this, it gives indication that it wasn't a holy time, but became a holy time. However, we could read this verse a different way, and instead of putting in shall be, what if we put in is? Then it would read the 15th day of this seventh month is the Feast of Tabernacles. And now here you might say to yourself, well, Micah, the translators put that in because they understand the, the Hebrew language. They understand uh, the context of how something is being said. And I would say, you're right. Um, I, I don't have as, as much Hebrew training uh, as some of these people putting together the Bible or adding these words in italics for clarification. But it's not just me that does this. Several people will do this in various other verses, and they'll take out the italicized word and say, yeah, it was assumed to be this, but it might not be. 
But I would never expect, as I make this argument, that you would just take my word for it. I, I would hope that you wouldn't. You know, this is what apologetics is. I'm, I'm trying to build a case. I'm trying to make proofs. And I, I don't want it to just be, well, because Micah said so, and that seems to make sense. So I, I didn't just go ahead and say, well, it should be is rather than shall be. Um, but there's actually contextual evidence that points to it uh, probably being more accurate as these days being current days and just something that Israel was supposed to keep rather than something God created at that moment for them to keep. And the verse I'd like to point to to offer a proof of this is the verse that says, these are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim. So an initial reading of this might give the impression that uh, the way that these days are made holy is that God explains that they should keep it, and when they keep it, then they are making it holy. But I think most people in the Christian world would understand that absolutely not. It is God that makes something holy, and then he gives the command for them to proclaim that they are holy by keeping them. They are not making anything holy. So it says, these are the feasts of the Lord uh, presently but you shall proclaim them to be holy convocations. And I think this offers a little bit more proof that when it says the 15th day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles, it should actually say the 15th day of the seventh month is the Feast of Tabernacles currently. Or other words, prior to this command, these days were already in place. Whether or not Israel kept them does not uh, suddenly bring them into existence, but they already existed prior to the command to ancient Israel, uh, prior to this codification of what God expected Israel to do, these were, days were already in existence. Now, it's true that this offers no proof that my original claim was true. If you'll remember, my original claim was that these were days planned for from the beginning of creation. Now, even if we said these days were pre-existent uh, to the command when God gave it to ancient Israel, we could easily make the case or at least make the claim that, well, it was only 10 minutes before God came up with this, or it was only a week before and God came up with this. So it could be pre-existent without, uh, or, or in other words, it could predate the command that God gave, but only enough that God planned it out. It doesn't have to be something that went all the way back to the origin of creation. However, if you would turn to Genesis 1 verse 14, I think we'll see that my claim does stand up or at least does have some proof to it. In Genesis 1 verse 14, it says, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. So on first blush, it seems pretty obvious this is talking about a calendar. And mankind sets calendars. We do it based on days and years and seasons and everything. So is that what's being talked about? Well, we have here day and night, signs and seasons, which is a little bit more obscure. And we have days and years that will be marked out by lights in the firmament. Now, if we look at the word here, seasons, the word is moedim in Hebrew. And the literal translation is appointed times, places, meetings, or appointments. So is this man's appointments? Did God create a system wherein man could uh, get to work on time? Now, I'm not saying that isn't a side benefit, but to say that even before man was created, 
God knew they'd want to set their calendars, so he decided to create the entire sun and the entire moon and the clockwork system of the universe just so we could uh, wake up and show up to where we need to be and set appointments with other people. I think this is a little bit naive. Uh, it makes a lot more sense to say that these are times that God will appoint or has appointed because these seem to be times already appointed rather than times that will be appointed in a future tense. In several verses, uh, like Exodus 27, verse 21, 28, verse 43, and 29, verse 4, this word moedim is used in the terms the tabernacle of the congregation. And the word congregation here, or to gather, is moedim. So these seasons are times of appointment, times of gathering that God had in mind prior to mankind being around. Now, of course, mankind does use the sun and moon to construct calendars, uh, to know when to go to bed or know when to get up. We use them to keep track of time. But it's interesting that here, God seems to create these things for his use. Now, okay, so at creation, God had times of meeting in his mind when he made the sun and moon. And we see them being implemented in Leviticus when he tells the Israelites about these holy days that seem to somehow predate, but are being handed to them at this point. Now, to me, this is already interesting enough. This is already something where I, uh, even if I hadn't known about this prior to me uh, presenting this information, this is probably the point where I would say, hmm, this is interesting, and I think I do need to look a little bit deeper into this. Because if your preconceived notion was that um, the Feast of Tabernacles and the Holy Days, whatever you might know about them, were days that God gave to ancient Israel or to the Jews. Um, and now you notice that, no, this predates Israel, this predates the Jews and goes all the way back to predating mankind. Then you might say, okay, well, this has been a day that's been around for a long time, even predating the command to ancient Israel. So how much longer might it have gone uh, on the flip side? Uh, and that's that's kind of the question that we're asking. So even if you disagree with me up to this point, I would ask that you, you still stick around for the rest of it because this uh, beginning portion was to kind of uh, at least show you that I have something worth saying. I have some points. I have some proofs. And um, even if you're not absolutely convinced, just to show that my viewpoint is at least rational and reasonable. So what about my third claim here, which I kind of alluded to just a second ago, that states that the Feast of Tabernacles is not just a festival for the Jews. Um, now, I understand why people come to this conclusion that it is just a festival for the Jews, especially in John's gospel. It is consistently called, as are other days that are set apart by God, a feast of the Jews. Now, I'm not going to be claiming that this is wrong. Um, it's the Bible. Far be it from me to correct the Apostle John um, by any means. So it's not wrong, but I think we do have to consider a few things. I, I think we have to look a little bit deeper, uh, consider a few questions, ask ourselves a few questions. And I think if we do this, we'll see that while it's not wrong to call it a feast of the Jews, as John did, especially in the context of what he's talking about, um, it's certainly incomplete. Um, so, so what are the things we have to consider? I think the first thing is that even the um, initial command that we find in Leviticus 23 was not to the Jews. It was to Israel. Now, this is confusing in our modern understanding of Israel um, because currently in the nation, there are a lot of Jewish people 
living there, nationality-wise and also religion-wise. But the Jews were not just Israel. The Jews were the tribe of Judah, more specifically with a little bit of Benjamin and Levi mixed in. But when Judah broke off from the other tribes of Israel and formed their own kingdom, and then when Israel was defeated by Assyria, uh, note the reason they were defeated and God let them be taken over, he says, was for forsaking him, for neglecting his Sabbath day, which I also personally observe, and his holy days for false gods and idols. Um, but we lose track when, when this happens, when Judah splits off, we lose track of the physical nations that make up Israel. Um, because they were taken over and assimilated into other areas. Now, it's still mentioned throughout the Bible as there were those of Israeli descent after their annihilation, and God promises to bring Israel back. But it was not Judah only that this command was given to in Leviticus 23. It was the entire nation of Israel that does include Judah, but is not selectively Judah. So this, along with our modern view of the nation of Israel being comprised of those who practice Judaism, really reflect in our terminology, and even a lot of scholarly work will neglect this fact, and they just call everyone uh, in Israel currently the Jews, or everyone in ancient Israel the Jews, but Israel is not the Jews. It is much more. But the Jews at this time were Israel and were included in that command from God. So calling it a festival of the Jews and leaving it at that uh, isn't quite enough evidence to say that it shouldn't be anyone else's festival either. But what about what God calls it? I think this is far more important than what I call it or what modern scholars call it. What does God call it? What does God call these days, this Feast of Tabernacles? He says back in Leviticus 23, these are, notice the current statement, the feasts of the Lord. They belong to God. So God called that meeting. He called that appointment. He set that time. Now, yes, at John's time of writing, the Jewish people were the ones known to keep them. And as John is writing to a primarily Gentile audience, some believe uh, possibly in Ephesus, his use of the wording feast of the Jews does not mean that God only wants the Jewish people to keep his command, but that that is the reference point a Gentile audience would have understood these feast days to be observed in. So God called an appointed time for his people and when we are baptized in Christ and receive the Holy Spirit, we are God's people. So are you showing up to the appointment? And I think this question becomes especially prevalent when we realize that Jesus certainly showed up for the appointment, as well as did the apostles. And this brings us into our fourth point. Jesus and the apostles kept the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, uh, the purpose of this section, because a lot of people will say, well, of course they did. Uh, they were Jewish, at least in, in culture and in nationality. Um, so this, this might not be the greatest apologetic point for you to say that non-Jewish people, uh, non-people of the tribe of Judah should keep these. But I think there is an important uh, aspect to this argument here because we are, as Christians, following Christ. So anything Christ does, we should pay particularly close attention to to uh, similar to the argument we made about it being a command from God. Anything Christ does as an example, we should look to to see if it's an example that we should follow as well. Um, and, and many are familiar with the phrase, what would Jesus do? But are we actually actively combing the scripture to see what he did do 
that we should be emulating because Jesus did keep the Feast of Tabernacles as did his disciples and apostles. Now, like I said, uh, Jesus and his apostles were Jewish uh, and they kept the Jewish traditions, went to synagogue, etc. So this isn't to say, once again, that this is proof that non-Jewish people kept the feast. Uh, we're going to get to that in just a little bit. However, the fact that Jesus did it and never mentions to his disciples that they don't really need to is, uh, it's an argument for silence, I'll admit that, but it's a fairly strong argument for silence, in, in my opinion, or from silence. So yeah, my point here is, is just that when Jesus does something and we find ourselves in that same situation or in a similar opportunity, we should take it seriously what Jesus has done and uh, follow him because he lived a perfect life. Uh, we might agree with this statement and we might actually think of it practically like uh, if I'm ever questioned by people that are trying to trip me up regarding my religion, we can look to Jesus' example of how he handled that situation and that's that's good. But right now, in a very passive way, you have an opportunity yearly to keep the Feast of Tabernacles as Jesus did, so why not look to his example? Now, if you're unfamiliar with the fact that Jesus kept the Feast of Tabernacles, it is found in John chapter 7. In verse 10 is the beginning of this section, or at least the beginning of where I'd like to start. John 7 verse 10 says, But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. Others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? So we see a Jesus here that is even under the threat of death, seeing it important enough to go to the Feast of Tabernacles. The Jewish leaders are seeking to kill him at this point, but he still uh, decided to go up anyways, albeit in secret. Now I'd like to point out some refutations to this because um, there always are. There's a million opinions for everything. Um, but some commentaries will point to this section and say that Jesus didn't really keep the feast. He didn't really uh, go up to the feast or find it that important to be there on the high holy days or anything like that. Uh, they'll claim that the statement, when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, is misplaced and misordered. So that it should read, after his brothers went up to the feast, he also went up. Which leaves a little bit more ambiguity as to uh, where he went up to. Now to me, this seems like a lot of wordplay and fancy footwork to claim that Jesus didn't go to the feast. But even the phrase, he went up alone, and following the fact that his brothers went up and he also did later seems to me to still imply that the place he went up to was Jerusalem, where the feast was occurring. And you see this used time and time again, the phrase he went up or they went up, meaning up to Jerusalem, which was on top of a hill. 
And many scholars do agree with this, particularly uh, the phrasing of he went up indicates going to Jerusalem. You'll find several times in the Bible where people will try and point out contradictions and uh, they will be north of Jerusalem, headed south, and it'll say they went up to Jerusalem. And people will say, see, there's a contradiction because they were up north and they had to be traveling south and that's down to Jerusalem. But these were not directions in like a cardinal compass kind of way, but directions as far as up the mountain that Jerusalem sat on top of. So this does seem to be um, that he headed to Jerusalem, but commentaries will also continue to the fact where it says uh, in verse 14, now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And they'll say that this shows that Jesus didn't even arrive until the middle of the feast, and this proves it. However, I think this only makes sense if you can claim with certainty the first premise that they postulate, which I, I think I've already dealt with enough. Um, so yeah, if, if you're assuming that he didn't go up to the feast, and then this other verse comes in that says, at the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and taught, maybe you could go ahead and say, see, this shows that he didn't go up to the feast until the middle of the feast, meaning he disregarded the first holy day, uh, the first day of the feast. So if you don't read it this way, where you're flipping around words and uh, breaking into the middle of a verse and claiming that it's a timestamp and things like this, then the natural reading of the order of events seems to be that Jesus lingered while his brothers went up, and then he went up in secret to the feast, but revealed himself towards the middle of the feast when he began preaching in the temple. So yes, Jesus Christ kept the Feast of Tabernacles, um, but we could ask, could it be a cultural thing only, the fact that he was a Jewish man and uh, not just something that everybody should do? And this brings us to our fifth point. The feast was continued to be kept by Christians after Christ's death and resurrection. I think this should put to rest the idea that the feast is cultural, only considering the vast majority of Christians after Christ's death and the initial spread of Christianity were Gentiles. Uh, it should also put to rest the idea that the Feast of Tabernacles was a part of the law that was done away with. Now, I have an episode I'm working on right now that deals with what exactly was done away with, what is included in the Old Covenant, and what is included in the New Covenant, and how are we supposed to differentiate. But uh, this is a minor point in that whole discussion. The Feast of Tabernacles, at the very least, was not done away with. And I hope to show that um, not only in this section, but also in that future episode as well. Acts 18 is the next section that I'll go to. And here in verse 19, uh, it says this about the Apostle Paul. And he came to Ephesus and left from there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. So here, Paul is desiring to keep the feast. I've heard some people try and explain this away by saying that, well, of course he wanted to go to the feast because this was a good spot for evangelism. But remember, Paul was primarily the apostle to the Gentiles, not that he never spoke to Jews or never went to Jews. Actually, in this section here, he's specifically talking to Jewish people, telling them he's going to go keep the feast. 
But the fact remains that a good portion of Paul's evangelism was to a Gentile audience. So you had people like James, the brother of Jesus, uh, already stationed in Jerusalem, and a growing church of Christians there that could have easily done the evangelizing in Jerusalem. But Paul doesn't say he's going to evangelize in Jerusalem. He says he desires to go there to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. I also noticed in studying this that this uh, section is often removed from a lot of different translations. It just says, I'll come back to you, God willing. But it doesn't say, uh, I have to go keep the feast in Jerusalem, but I'll come back to you, God willing. Like It, it leaves out that middle part specifically. And this to me is interesting. Um, I can't say it was done maliciously or malevolently, but it is definitely uh, the wording here in Greek is, uh, definitely inclusive of the fact that Paul went to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, even though that section is left out in some translations. Now, another interesting thing uh, that people will try and say here is that um, Paul went up to keep the feast, and we can say that for a fact, but notice he didn't bring any Gentile followers with him, so it doesn't seem as if he expected anybody else to keep the feast. Um, because they weren't going up to Jerusalem, which is where the feast was kept. But I think uh, this verse alone points out the fact that not all Jews at this point were actually making the trip up to Jerusalem. He says, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem to Jews. Well, if they were going with him, you know, they asked him to stay and he says, no, I have to go to the feast in Jerusalem. So not all Jews, even at this point, were going all the way up to Jerusalem in order to keep the feast. So the fact that people aren't coming with him, uh, Jew or Gentile, is not proof that anyone's not keeping the feast, um, just that they weren't going to Jerusalem as he was to keep the feast. And the fact that worship at the temple uh, was not always synonymous with uh, keeping the Feast of Tabernacles is is fairly consistent throughout Scripture. First of all, they didn't actually have a temple in the wilderness when this initial command was handed down to ancient Israel. So it's not like they were keeping it at the temple. They did keep it at the tabernacle, which was eventually replaced by the temple in Jerusalem. Um, but even so, there was no temple to speak of at that point. But also, going forward, the temple became increasingly... Uh, a sign of Judaism and Christianity was, well, number one, not welcome in the temple, but realized that their calling transcended um, some of the physical attributes that the temple pictured and that some of those attributes were fulfilled in Christ. And we can see a testimony of this in Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7. And I think we'll see a few other really interesting things as well uh, in Acts chapter 7, uh, particularly beginning in verse 37. So Stephen is talking to the Sanhedrin, and he's comparing them to a stiff-necked, stubborn, ancient Israel. And he says, This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. So he is comparing them to ancient Israel and saying that these oracles that were handed down at Sinai, which included the commandments, which included uh, the Feast of Tabernacles and the other holy days, are living oracles. He doesn't say they're dead. He doesn't say they're done away with. He says that they are living oracles. 
And he also draws out the point that they were keeping them incorrectly. They rejected God. They were stiff-necked. They did not obey. And uh, this is hard for the Sanhedrin to hear who feel they are keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. They are keeping the Holy Days. They are keeping the commands of God um, almost to a fault by putting a hedge around the law and making it very difficult to follow God's law. Um, But Stephen here is saying that the oracles that were handed down are living. They are current. They are not dead. They are not done away with. But Israel did not obey, but rejected, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Now he is saying this about a people who kept the Feast of Tabernacles, but God constantly rebuked ancient Israel for keeping it the wrong way, focusing on the wrong things. God tells Israel that he despises their feast days and their sacrifices because they offer them with unclean hands and impure hearts. So uh, at this point, they had made God's feasts their own feasts, and they were worshiping him in a way that he didn't wish to be worshiped, focusing on some of the physical things rather than the spiritual implication behind all of Uh, what God was implying with these feast days, and uh, also just the spiritual implication of following what God tells you to do in the way God tells you to follow them with the heart that God tells you to follow with. They weren't doing this even though they were keeping the feast, so um, or, or keeping the feast at least in their minds. And Stephen is comparing the Sanhedrin to these people, saying, yeah, you do all the things you're supposed to be doing in a very technical sense, but you're so focused on the tabernacle and the wealth of the temple that you are neglecting the actual living oracles or the living law of God. And this included things like the Feast of Tabernacles. So this is Stephen um, representing a lot of Christianity at this time, saying that we can keep those living oracles without your temple, without your tabernacle that is more about the splendor of it and the glory of yourselves than it is about actually obeying God. And uh, we see this in verse 44 when he says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so to you. That's a really long section, but I think it's so important in showing the ideas of Christianity at this time, saying that they didn't need the temple or the tabernacle to keep the feasts or keep the living oracles that were handed down at Sinai or handed down to ancient Israel. They could do that in their own locations, uh, wherever they were, because God was dwelling in them through his Holy Spirit. And he was basically ridiculing the Sanhedrin's overimportance placed upon the actual physical temple, which really, really made them mad. So Paul's going up to keep the feast in Jerusalem um, does not mean that he had to keep the feast in Jerusalem. It's that he desired to keep it there in Jerusalem, probably to see um, people like James or other church leaders in the area. Um, or even just visit the people there. But this does not seem like a 
um, evangelistic mission. This does not seem like just a place he'd like to visit, um, though he's not keeping the feast. It seems honestly and genuinely like he is going to keep the feast in Jerusalem, but there's a certain expectation that the people uh, back in Gentile churches will also be keeping the feast where they are, which is fully justified uh, based on what Stephen says in his speech to the Sanhedrin about not needing the temple anymore and having the spirit dwelling in Christians as God's people. Now, some seem to take other sections of what Paul says out of context regarding certain days uh, that some of the Gentiles are keeping, and they apply them to the Feast of Tabernacles. But I think if we take some of these verses and we bring some context into them, we'll see that Paul is not condemning the keeping of the Feast of Tabernacles, which would be weird and inconsistent anyways, because he also keeps the feast. Um, But in Galatians uh, chapter 4, verse 10, he says, you observe days and months and times and years, and uh, Paul is condemning this. But here... Paul was talking to the Galatians. These were Israelites after the dispersion. These were um, Gentiles uh, for all due purposes. And they had never celebrated the holy days in their lives. They had, however, observed other days, months, times, and years, uh, certain pagan days and celebrations. And this is what Paul is talking about. Why would he go to a Gentile nation who has never kept the holy days and said, you observe days and months and times and years, and that's wrong. um, So stop keeping the holy days when they're not even keeping the holy days. This doesn't really seem to make any sense. So Paul can't be talking about the feast days there. Um, And if he was, it would be inconsistent based upon the fact that he also kept the feast, as we see. Uh, People also point to Colossians 2, uh, verse 16, where it says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of any holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. So is Paul talking against the holy days here? Well, if you actually look at what he's talking about, you'll notice that he's actually Uh, telling people not to let anyone judge them concerning the keeping of these days. He's not actually saying or advocating for the fact that they shouldn't be keeping these days. So I'm not sure how exactly that jump comes in because clearly they're keeping these days. And then he says, let no one judge you in these things that you are already doing. If we'll continue on the verse here, um, it says of these holy days or um, what people are judging in meat or in drink, or holy days, or new moons, or Sabbath days. It says these are a shadow of things to come. And it says, again, going back to the beginning, let no man judge you. And then at the end of this sentence, it comes back to that saying, but the body is of Christ, or the body of Christ should judge you in these matters. So what's really being said here in Colossians is it was the church, the body of Christ, that was to judge the Christian's at Colossians, not outsiders, not other Gentiles that weren't in the church. Um, You know, someone might look at you for keeping the feast and say, that's pretty odd. I don't know what that is, but you're not keeping the days that I'm keeping. And they might judge you in that. Um, But Paul's saying, you are keeping them. I'm not advocating that you don't keep them, but let no man judge you except the body of Christ, who should be the arbiter of um, interpreting the Bible, interpreting the scripture, and interpreting how we should be keeping these days. So really, this is instruction to continue keeping these days and not be concerned with other people who think that you shouldn't, that are outside of the church. 
And this phrase here, shadow of things to come, I think is really important because we can look at that and say, it just means they're not important. Um, the things to come are much more important. The things they represent are much more important. To which I would say, I 100% agree with you. I have no qualms about saying that. Me keeping the Feast of Tabernacles is not nearly as important as the future fulfillment of what that Feast of Tabernacles pictures, which the New Testament bears out to be the millennial reign of Jesus Christ on earth. And this brings us to our final point, our final apologetic for the Feast of Tabernacles or the keeping of the Feast of Tabernacles, and that is that one day it is prophesied that all will be keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. And if this is the case, then what right do we have to say that we get to take a break at this modern time? So, so God had these days planned out from the beginning of time, and then he instituted these days by commanding them to ancient Israel to keep. We see them kept all throughout the Bible, even into the New Testament and the Christianity we see there in the early church. And then now we don't really have to keep them, but in some future time, everybody will be keeping them. Why are we excluded from this? Why do we take a break on these days that have been kept and will be kept, but somehow aren't kept now? I just, I don't see that in the Bible. So if we would turn to Zechariah 14, I think that we'll see that this final point is absolutely unequivocally true. In Zechariah 14, starting in verse 1, uh, just to give us a little bit of context, we'll be skipping over much of this, but it says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. So this is talking about the day of the Lord, the coming day of the Lord. And this is not a time that has happened yet. And we can see this because, I mean, particularly in the New Testament, um, they continue to talk about the day of the Lord as a future event. But also it says the Lord will go forth. So anyone that wants to say this happened in 70 AD when uh, Rome sacked Jerusalem, this is just absolutely not true, especially when here it talks about um, the Lord going forth and being here doing battle. Um, in verse 4, it says the Mount of the Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. So this is a future event to come. This is not something that has happened yet. This is the day of the Lord talked about throughout the Bible. And this is just prior to Christ's return and also also inclusive of Christ's return as well. But if we continue on through this, it talks about all these horrible things that will happen in the day of the Lord. But in verse 16, after all of this is over, it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and keep the feast of tabernacles. This is absolutely the nail in the coffin for me. In verse 17, I'll continue on. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This is again and again proof that at some future date, 
all the nations, even the ones that are enemies of Jerusalem, God's city, and God himself, and they go up to fight against Jerusalem where God himself is fighting, even they will keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So if even the enemies of God at some future time will be keeping the Feast of Tabernacles, why are the friends of God or the people of God right now not keeping the Feast of Tabernacles? This is the question I have. Not to mention the point I made earlier that the feast has been something that has been in existence uh, at least since the beginning of creation, but maybe even prior in God's mind. And it was handed down to ancient Israel, kept throughout the Bible, kept by Jesus Christ, kept by the apostles, including Paul, and also kept by the early church, which included Gentiles. But then for this modern period of time, we don't have to keep it because it's old and we don't see it as a command to us. This just doesn't make sense, particularly when the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles will continue at some future fulfillment. So yes, it's a shadow of things to come, but I choose to celebrate that shadow uh, looking forward to the things to come because God has put it in my heart to do it and I, I fully believe that it's a command that's been handed down to generations of God's people, not just ancient Israelites and not just the Jewish people of today. Well, thank you very much for listening. I really do appreciate it. Uh, I hope I didn't ruffle too many feathers, um, but maybe you don't agree with me, and that, that's totally okay. Um, this is a place for discussion and for critical thinking. Uh, I'm not trying to bash anybody or slam what you do or what you believe, but just give you something to think about and to think critically about, especially in light of some of the premises and conclusions that we've gone through today. If you are someone who keeps the Feast of Tabernacles, I hope you find this to be a valuable resource as you explain uh, your belief to other people. And I hope you take some hope in the fact that what you believe and what you do is rational and reasonable according to scripture, and that you're not by yourself in celebrating these days. If you don't keep the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, maybe this gave you pause, maybe gave you something to think about. Um, there are resources online that you can look at if you'd like to know more, and I encourage you to do so because this is something important even though, again, we are not earning salvation by works. Uh, when we believe that Christ is working with us, we should you know, strive to be his people, strive to do what he says we should do, strive to obey him how he wants to be obeyed. He lays it pretty clearly out for us if we just do a little bit of critical thinking, a little bit of deeper study, and a little bit of labor in the word. Um, but maybe you don't agree with me and you think I'm absolutely wrong on this. That's okay. I still appreciate you listening through, giving me the benefit of the doubt, and uh, hopefully treating me with some grace in our differences of understanding and interpretation of scripture. So once again, thank you all very much. It really does mean a lot. It's very humbling that you would click on this podcast and listen through to the end. It is just uh, amazing. And I thank God every day that I get to do this. If you found this to be a benefit or you find my other episodes to be a benefit to you, something that you enjoy and appreciate, I would really appreciate if you would take the time to like, comment, share, rate, or subscribe on whichever streaming platform you listen on. It really does mean a lot to me, and it also uh, helps out so much in getting this project out to as many people as possible. Um, as always, God is providing the increase, so um, there's nothing I can really do to hinder it or uh, promote it more than God wills, but... Um, I am supposed to put in the work, and I would hope you join me in that work by uh, supporting this in whatever way you see fit. And I really do thank you ahead of time. 
So until next time, continue to read your Bibles, continue to think critically about them, and continue to apply the truths that we learn here to your lives. Thanks, guys.